This month on Security Management Highlights. It needs to be in a climate-controlled environment. Special security needs to be taken to make sure it doesn't get stolen or it doesn't get damaged during the transportation process. How museums are securing precious property for special exhibitions and managing their display. Leaders on the city and state level were not really responsive to residents' complaints. The water crisis in Flint, Michigan holds some important lessons when it comes to crisis management. Plus... The gunfire attack on the Metcalf substation in Palo Alto, California in 2013 has had tremendous consequences for both Pacific Gas and Electric and for the electric sector as a whole. This month's member spotlight on Ross Johnson, CPP, who authored a book on anti-terrorism and is an ASIS Council Vice President. I'm your host, Assistant Editor Holly Gilbert Stowell, and that's all coming up on this edition of Security Management Highlights. If you've ever been to a special exhibit at a museum, it's possible the artwork you're viewing has potentially traveled thousands of miles just to reach you. There's a lot of effort that goes on behind the scenes to make sure the art is transported and displayed securely at museums. Assistant Editor Megan Gates is here to tell us more about these and other aspects of protecting cultural property for special exhibitions. Megan, welcome to the podcast. Hi, Holly. Thanks for having me. Thanks for stopping by to talk about this month's cover story, which you wrote. And for this article, you traveled to Bentonville, Arkansas to visit the Crystal Bridges Museum of American Art. So how did this trip come about? Well, the International Foundation for Cultural Property Protection, IFCPP, for those of you who are familiar, has an annual conference that focuses on museum security and cultural institution security. And so their annual conference in 2015 was hosted at, in part, at the Crystal Bridges Museum of American Art. And so we worked it out so that I could attend the full conference. And it was a great opportunity to meet lots of people, obviously get a lot of one-on-one time with other museum security professionals and it was a good chance for me to revisit Crystal Bridges Museum of American Art because my parents, ironically, actually live in the area. So I'd been there several times before when it was first opened about five, six years ago and over the years. And while I was at Crystal Bridges for the conference, um, I got to talking to the Crystal Bridges team about I've always wanted to put together a piece for security management on special exhibition security. The process for a museum to host a special exhibition, what goes into that, the planning, and sort of the security aspect that surrounds the whole thing. So I was talking to Joff Goodrich, the security director for Crystal Bridges, about this idea, and I asked him, you know, would this be something you would be interested in being interviewed for, for the magazine? And he was like, absolutely. So after I got home from from the trip, I followed up with him, and the rest is history. So Crystal Bridges is just one example of a museum that hosts a special exhibition. So how do they in particular do it? Once they decide they're going to have the special art or exhibit, how do they decide what role security plays? Well, one thing that's kind of unique from Crystal Bridges' perspective is that they bring security in right away to the process. So early on, the curatorial team and the exhibition team, they meet and sort of decide, go through proposals that the museum receives about exhibitions that it could host. And once they choose a specific exhibition that they think is a viable option for the museum, then they start going over the requirements of the exhibition itself. So the size of the art, the climate that it will need to be exhibited in, and also the security conditions, because sometimes for a special exhibition, those are part of a an overall contract. You know, there has to be a certain amount of cameras, or there needs to be a certain amount of security guards on staff all the time around particular pieces of art. When they're going over those aspects, they bring in Joff 
again, the director of security to sort of review the initial requirements and say, this is something that Crystal Bridges can do, or this is something, unfortunately, that's just not, you know, within our wheelhouse. The big focus talking to Jeff is the manpower needed. So the number of security officers that need to be stationed throughout the museum for a special exhibition. And so that's where the planning process of planning an exhibition is really important because it gives the museum an idea of, you know, how many people they will need to have on staff, if they need to go out and hire new people and sort of plan so that they have the budget to make that possible. And Megan, in your story, you cite a case of a couple of truck drivers who left some precious artwork unattended in a parking lot and it ended up being stolen. So obviously transportation plays a big role in setting up these exhibitions. So how does security work with the transportation to make sure that everything goes off without a hitch? Well, typically for shipments like this, a museum hires an art handler. So it's a company that specializes in moving art because there are obviously lots of unique security concerns related to that. It needs to be in a climate controlled environment. Special security needs to be taken to make sure it doesn't get stolen or it doesn't get damaged during the transportation process. So typically a museum will contract this service out. And so while I was researching this article, I tried to make contact with several different art handlers. Unfortunately, None of them are available to be interviewed, but I did get an interview with FedEx Custom Critical. They're under the FedEx umbrella, and they transport art via like freight trucks across the United States and into Canada. So I was able to talk to them about the process that they use and how they work with museums to transport art. Their drivers have to pass a background security check, and then when those drivers are hired for a specific job transporting art from one, say, a museum like on the East Coast to one on the West Coast, before they would show up to the museum on the East Coast, that museum gets a copy of the driver's photo identification so that they can verify who the driver is, who's picking up the shipment, and make sure that they are who they really say they are. And then throughout the entire process, FedEx uses tracking on its vehicle so it can see you know, where the truck is at all times. And it's also set up a, a communication system. So if there's a problem, the driver can always reach FedEx headquarters and let them know, you know, if there's been an accident, if they're going to be delayed, or if there's a maintenance problem on the vehicle, just so that they're in constant communication to keep track of that shipment, which is obviously very critical because nobody wants to lose art in transit. And then one thing I talked to Crystal Bridges staff about was how they sort of do a handoff of once the art shipment arrives, how does that process work getting it into the museum. And so Crystal Bridges is pretty unique because once the security team knows the arrival date for an exhibition, its exterior security team helps assist with the delivery, which is usually via truck as Crystal Bridges is kind of in the middle of America. The truck enters its receiving area, which is designed to allow a 52-foot truck with a cab to enter and then be sealed off with a gate. That helps create a secure area for the offloading of the art. And once the truck is at Crystal Bridges and in that area, um, it has a process where its receiving clerk shuts down the whole docking area. So the clerk sends out an email and a radio alert that the receiving dock area is closed, except to essential personnel who are involved in offloading the truck. They also post signage in the museum's elevators so staff are aware of the closure and only approved personnel can use their access cards to be allowed into the receiving area. So it's quite a process and obviously one that's invisible to all the guests who come and visit, but I guess that's how security should be in a lot of ways. And that's something that I think I, even as a museum attendee, have, have definitely taken for granted. And so once the exhibit goes up, what does security do from there? How do they deal with perhaps an unexpected influx of guests or people who might want to touch the artwork if it looks especially tactile? How do they handle these fluid situations? 
Yeah, that's a good question, Holly. So how Crystal Bridges approaches it is I talked to Nikki Cacciatoli Stewart, who is Crystal Bridges' chief engagement officer about this. And one thing that they do at Crystal Bridges to kind of test out, you know, how many people might be interested in a particular exhibit is they will do an initial opening for members of the museum only. So this gives them a feel of what interest is for the exhibition and helps plan how many staff should be on duty, you know, how many people should be stationed throughout the gallery to make sure that no one is getting too close to the art or that people are being given directions or can ask questions if they want to know more about the piece of art. So after there's sort of an initial test period, Nikki will go and meet with Joff and the security team and they will talk about things that they're seeing in the galleries, areas that might be creating a bottleneck throughout the gallery. If there's one piece of art that people seem to be particularly interested in and you know they're standing around it creating a crowd float problem to get to the rest of the gallery. So then they'll revisit ways that they can work that out whether that's controlling the number of people who are allowed into the gallery at one time or, or rearranging the artwork to provide better flow throughout the gallery. One unique thing that Crystal Bridges dealt with is they had a special exhibit called called State of the Art, Discovering American Art Now, and it featured 102 different artists from across the country, and it took over the entire footprint of the museum itself. Nikki said they had art everywhere. It was in the pond, art in their stairwells, art in their hallways, so it was very engaging and textured for people to, to look at, which in some cases makes people want to touch the art, which is usually not allowed. So Crystal Bridges dealt with this by increasing the number of staff that they had on the floor of the gallery space to be there to remind people, hey, don't get so close. And also just to answer general questions about the exhibition itself, because if you've seen pictures of it, it's now going to be exhibited at other museums throughout the country. It's really, really interesting. Thank you. This is a great example of securing cultural property and also dealing you know, with the public. Thank you so much, Megan. Thanks for having me, Holly. The fallout from the drinking water crisis in Flint, Michigan, that potentially affected the health of tens of thousands of residents, is still unfolding. On April 26th, city residents filed a $220 million lawsuit against the Environmental Protection Agency, claiming it acted negligently in the crisis, which resulted in high levels of lead in the city's drinking water. Three Michigan government employees are already facing charges and could serve time in prison. But where exactly did these agencies and officials go wrong? And what, if anything, can be learned from their mistakes? Senior editor Mark Tarallo joins us to tell us more about his News and Trends article on this topic. Hey, Mark. Welcome to the podcast. Hi, Holly. Tell us more about the situation in Flint, Michigan, which I just set up with the most recent news about the lawsuit in the introduction. How did this problem go overlooked for so long? It's an interesting example, uh, especially in the context of crisis management and emergency management. One of the main reasons that it was overlooked for so long was that both leaders on the city and state level were not really responsive to residents' complaints because when the officials decided to switch the water source, this was in April 2014, from Lake Huron to the Flint River, as soon as the switch was made, residents started complaining. People were saying that the water is a strange color. People were getting rashes. A lot of people said their children were having problems with the waters. Some people were reporting illnesses. All these complaints, and yet officials didn't jump on this, didn't immediately jump into action and investigate these complaints. That was one factor in why the situation was so damaging, because it was overlooked. And so there was time for this bad water, this contaminated, polluted water, to do damage among city residents. 
So, Mark, this piece talks a lot about crisis management, and Flint is really, sadly, a case study in what not to do in so many ways. So I want to explore some of that. You write that Flint officials did not sufficiently evaluate the possible hazards when they switched water sources. So what did some of the people that you talked to for your article say about this type of misstep? Yeah, they they did say that was a very big misstep. It's a situation that a lot of city managers and even security managers face on a pretty regular basis, which is there's real cost issues here. You know, Flint was in bad financial straits, and so they made a leadership change, and they needed to basically straighten out their financial situation. So there's the financial issue intersecting with the possibility of, okay, a switch in the water source could save the city some money. But the question is, what is the potential for problems, for damage, if the switch doesn't go well? Two of my sources who spoke to this issue a lot, uh, Jerome Hauer and Harry Rulin, they're actually both members of the ASIS Crisis Management and Business Continuity Council. And basically, my sources said that was one of the big problems, is that people who make these decisions, whether they be city managers, whether they be security managers, whether they be even elected officials, they need to really evaluate all possibilities because the potential for damage is so huge. Water supply is such a basic thing and it can really cause just irreparable harm if the water's not clean. So one source of mine, Harry Rulin, he advocates what he calls a predict, plan, and perform model of crisis management. And he says Flint officials, their problem was they skipped the predict step. The predict step requires that managers brainstorm and say, okay, What are all the different outcomes here with this possibility? If we do switch the water supply, what are all the outcomes? And will any of these be negative? And if so, how negative? Those type of predictions are really key. Harry Rulin, my source, said they skipped the predict step went right to perform and no one thought out all the ramifications and potentially negative ramifications of this change in water source. And officials in Flint also failed to investigate complaints that you know people in the community were making about the drinking water. So how did this further hurt the situation? And I'm sure your sources said this is also not a good idea. Yeah, Jerome Hauer, who I interviewed, he had a very interesting perspective because he's worked in crisis management for years and has worked for people like former New York City Mayor Rudy Giuliani and current New York Governor Andrew Cuomo. And so what Howard said is that when complaints come in, officials and managers really have to be proactive in investigating exactly what the problem is, what potentially could be the problem. He gave the issue of there was a problem with mosquito bites, kind of people getting rashes from mosquito bites up in New York when he was working for Mayor Giuliani when they investigated turned out to be a problem with West Nile virus from the mosquito. So he says you never know what could be the source of these problems, what could be the ramifications. You have to investigate very, very aggressively. And officials did not do that, especially in the first several months. They did not investigate these complaints aggressively at all. 
So after all was said and done, Michigan officials finally did declare a public health emergency with potentially, you know, thousands of people's health affected, including children. So what steps are being taken now to address the issue and clean up the mess? As you said, it took much longer than it needed to. In fact, it was only in October 2015, last year, which was more than a year after the the water switch. That's when Michigan officials finally declared a public health emergency. A few months later in January, of this year, President Obama issued a state of emergency on the national level. So you have emergencies now, official emergencies on the local, state, and national level because of this water crisis. Washington's response is being led by the Federal Emergency Management Agency, FEMA, and the Department of Homeland Security. On the state level, the governor has called in the National Guard to help deliver clean water. That was a project where water was being delivered to almost 100,000 residents. And then the Attorney General of Michigan announced that he and his department were conducting a legal investigation into how the crisis unfolded to see if any laws were broken. And as you mentioned earlier, that did result in indictments and now prosecution. So there was a lot of fallout from this. But one of the, I guess, lessons learned of the whole matter is that the Flint situation really began as a fiscal crisis. So leaders went in with the overriding need to prioritize financial solutions. And so this water switch, changing of the management structure, all these things they did were basically responses to financial problems. The problem with that is that although obviously financial difficulties cannot be ignored, that created an environment when the actual emergency management process became secondary. And so the response was compromised. There was such a focus on short-term savings and fixing the budget that the response was severely compromised. Did your sources share with you any best practices that, you know, companies can employ when there is a crisis so they avoid walking in the same path as the Michigan officials? They did. In fact, one of the keys they said is, especially when a situation is really as disastrous as Flint, but it could also apply to things like a security problem, a security event, or an incident related to another public health problem. In responding, in managing a crisis, the goal is generally to bring a team together to identify identify integrated solutions. And the identification of integrated solutions, which is a holistic process, is key. Finances and the current budget of whether it's the city or if it's the company or whatever it's affecting, that's obviously a big issue. But there's also health issues. There's also strategic management issues. What's going to be the best for all the stakeholders? All these have to be considered kind of as a whole. And when one factor dominates like finance, finances, then problems arise because other things get ignored. In the Flint case, it was really the health of the residents. There was too much of a focus on short-term financial solutions and people suffered because of it. Thank you so much, Mark. Thanks, Holly. Finally, this month, our member spotlight interview is with Ross Johnson, CPP, who is one of nine ASIS International Council Vice Presidents. Hi, Ross. Thank you for joining us on Security Management Highlights. Hi, Holly. Thank you very much. Thank you for the opportunity to be here. So tell us, how long have you been involved in ASIS, and what have been some of your primary contributions to the society? I've been uh, in ASIS since 2001. I'm a member of the Petrochemical, Chemical, and Extractive Industries Security Council, and I've chaired that council in the past. I am now a council vice president, and I oversee the Food Defense and Agriculture Security Council, the Information Asset Protection and Pre-Employment Screening Council, Fire and Life Safety Council, 
Petrochemical, Chemical and Extractive Industry Security Council, Economic Crime Council, and I'm on the Policy and Procedures Committee. And I've presented several times at ASIS annual seminars on topics such as the prevention of terrorist attacks and the protection of the North American interconnected electric grid. And finally, I've done almost 30 book reviews for security management. I've always found that ASIS provides the framework to support my career, and I have belonged to it through three employers now. There are nine council vice presidents, and we each have responsibility for four or five councils, and our council that we are responsible for change every year. I know you've written a book on anti-terrorism. Tell us more about that and what else you wrote about in the book. It's anti-terrorism and threat response planning and implementation through CRC Press, and it is in the ASIS bookstore as well. So I learned about the anti-terrorism fundamentals from when I worked at the U.S. Army Intelligence Center in Fort Huachuca, Arizona. I was a Canadian Forces Liaison Officer there for four years at the end of the 90s. So it was interesting because they teach a course called Intelligence and Combating Terrorism, which forces us to look pretty closely at what terrorism is and what it isn't and various components involved in defeating it. So what I learned was, first of all, some definitions. Terrorism is simply an act of violence where the victim is not the intended target. So if you take a look at the attack on the USS Cole, for example, a number of years ago in the Middle East, well, that's a warship, so that's a military target. But what happened was an attack that was called terrorism. And the reason it was called terrorism and not, not an act of war was that the target, the, the victims were the men and women on the coal, but the, the target itself was the U.S. government policy in the Middle East. So counterterrorism is a name for the active measures that the police, military, intelligence, and diplomats use to detect, apprehend, or destroy terrorists and terrorist groups. Anti-terrorism is a name for the passive measures used to protect their organizations from terrorists. In the anti-terrorism world, it isn't our job to destroy the terrorist groups. We just want to convince them to leave us alone while the counterterrorism forces hunt them down. In anti-terrorism planning, we simply want to erode an adversary's confidence in their chances of success to a level where they will choose not to commit the act. Because remember that terrorism is an act of communication. Anti-terrorism is how we communicate with terrorists, and our message is very simple. It is that you will not succeed here. It's interesting, though. Like, I wrote the book. It was published in 2012 or 2013. And every once in a while, I hear back from somebody out in the field that's read it, and I get a comment back. So it's really cool when you get a comment from a reader on the other side of the planet saying that they found your work interesting or that they use some of the principles or the ideas in it. So what threats are security professionals in your field most challenged by, and how can they address them? So the way I look at this is that we have threats and challenges, and the threats aren't always, and challenges aren't always the same thing, but they occupy our time just the same. Now, I work in the electric sector, and I think a number of our threats and challenges are mirrored elsewhere in other critical infrastructure sectors. So the first one is high-impact, low-frequency events, otherwise known as black swan events. These events are difficult to prepare for because they are rare, but cause a lot of damage. How do you convince operations to prepare for an event that has a low likelihood of happening? To paraphrase Nicholas Taleb in The Black Swan, some people think that a 1 in 20 year event means that we have 19 years before we have to worry about it. The gunfire attack on the Metcalf substation in Palo Alto, California in 2013 was such an event, and it has had tremendous consequences for both Pacific Gas and Electric and for the electric sector as a whole. The second challenge is the safety of our guard force. There have been tremendous advances in industrial safety. And in some areas, these advances have left our guard forces behind. In many locations, the guard's job is the most dangerous one on site. Industrial workers have had safety engineered into their work, and they receive a lot of training. Our guards, maybe not so much. They deal with the most uncontrolled situations, though. For example, meeting the public, even the angry ones, driving vehicles, and foot patrols on icy ground. They rarely show up new on site with a background in industrial safety, so they don't know what the average plant worker knows. 
An example of that is maintaining three points of contact when on stairs or getting out of vehicles. Plant workers know this, but the guards often don't. As a result, they slip when dismounting from a vehicle on icy ground because they didn't hold on to a handhold or the steering wheel, or they fall down the stairs because they weren't using the handrail. The guard gets injured, and among other things, this may apply to the safety record of the plant where they are working. This can affect everyone if their safety record is tied to their bonus structure, which creates the sense that the guards are a net liability. We need to do better. Our guards should model the highest standards of safety in the facility, and they need to show up knowing how to use personal protective equipment, how to do hazard assessments, and the importance of reporting near-miss incidents. And then finally, the other challenge that I see is in the phrase, what gets measured gets done. There is a push towards measuring security through metrics. While some things lend themselves to measurement in our profession, many don't. I think that the idea that what gets measured gets done is false. Good leaders get work done the right way because their people know that their work is valuable and important, and they are recognized for it. To reduce everything to metrics is abrogating our responsibilities as leaders. Now, judging by the reaction I get from my friends in the security profession, I could be wrong on this. I had my colleagues yell at me when I tell them that I don't believe metrics are as important as they do. I just know that when I was an infantry officer in the Canadian Army, we stressed leadership, not numbers, and we defined leadership as having people do their tasks the way you want them to, even when you're not there. Furthermore, I think the most important task of the security department is to make people safe, and the test of that is, is if they feel safe. How do you put that on a dashboard? So, Ross, what does the future of security look like for those fields that you just touched on, and how will security professionals be utilizing the tools at their disposal? So I think the first thing is a combination of good, alert, well-trained, and motivated guards with comprehensive physical security information management systems, especially if there is a self-learning and adaptive component to the system. If your CCTV system has the ability to learn what is normal and flags the abnormal for the operator, then terrorists will find it very difficult to conduct the target surveillance they need without being noticed and reported to the counterterrorism forces. Several years ago at the ASIS annual seminar, I believe their first ASIS accolades award went to a company that had such a system. And there are a couple now that they look for anomalies. They see what is normal in a picture in a CCTV screen. And then when something abnormal happens, then they flag it to the operator and the operator then investigates. And it's a, it's a very, very powerful system. And it comes from something that's called big data analytics, which is a function, really, it comes from the high energy physics world. Scientists that are used to or are capable of taking huge amounts of data and processing it very, very quickly to extract full information. I think that if you take that and you combine it with security guards, good security guards, then what we'll find is that if there is an anomaly, something unusual is there, then the guards can assess it much more rapidly and they can, they can make the 911 call and get that law enforcement involved much earlier than they would have in the past. I think the other thing, too, is that especially in the critical infrastructure sectors like the electricity sector and pipelines and other sectors that have a large number of targets that are unmanned and often in remote locations and are very difficult to provide security for, I think that what we're going to find is that resilience is going to become more and more important. So while we can support the operations by pro providing protection, we'll also be supporting the operations by assisting in their resilience measures, which essentially is rapid repair. If a transmission line is knocked down by ice storm, for example, utilities have some transmission companies have very good plans for restoring power quickly. If our transmission line is knocked down by terrorists with explosives, the same, the same procedures to restore power are going to become important. So we can't believe that we are the, the end all for protection of our assets. What we really need to be doing is supporting the resilience of the organization, not just the actual physical protection. Thank you so much, Ross, for joining us. Thank you very much, Holly. I appreciate the 
or to SAS. And that's all for this edition of Security Management Highlights. Be on the lookout later this month for a bonus episode on securing municipal warehouses and preventing shrink in my interview with ASIS member Marshall K. James. And be sure to subscribe to the podcast on iTunes or SoundCloud so you don't miss an episode. If there's a certain topic you'd like to see covered in the podcast, please shoot me a line at smpodcast at asisonline.org. Thanks so much for listening. Once again, I'm your host, Assistant Editor Holly Gilbert Stowell. Bye-bye.